Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame, the third in a week. Joining me on Overtime is the man himself, Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. I'm happy to be here today with you, and I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to our, our guest, David Einhorn. Yes, we've been we've been looking forward to this, you and I, for a long, long time now, and um, I don't think there's any need to delay this, Bill. Why wait? Why don't we just bring David on and get into it? I'm, I agree. We'll just dive in. David, welcome to The Endgame. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We are thrilled to have the chance to talk to you. Well, I'm delighted to be here. You know, I think I've listened to pretty much every Endgame podcast that you guys have had. I'm a huge fan of the show. So I, I think I'm like a like a frequent listener, first-time caller kind of. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You've just won yourself a set of steak knives if you listen to them all. So we'll get those in the mail to you, to you well, right that's, away. That's really good because I, I just moved and we need some steak knives. All right. This is perfect. There's so much we'd love to talk to you about. And um, I think Bill and I were both fascinated with a couple of interviews we saw you give recently in and around the, the Robinhood conference. And congratulations on that, by the way, another absolutely phenomenal event. A lot of it to do with value investing and the potential death of value investing. It's, it's, it's received a lot of headlines. And I think for, for Bill and I, as we try and figure out what the end game looks like, there are so many component parts to the end game. And I think value investing is one of those because it used to be just investing. You know, a couple of hundred years ago, what value investing has become was just called investing. You used <laughs> to find companies that you thought were valuable and you invested money in them and you sat and you watched and you waited for them to perform. And if they didn't, you sold them. It was that simple. So um, if we can start there with value investing and, and the, the headlines all scream, you know, Einhorn calls death of value investing. Let's get a bit more nuance in it than that and try and flesh out your thoughts around that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I, I, I welcome the opportunity to elaborate on what I, on what I said and, and what I meant. Um, I'd quibble only slightly with your introduction. Value investing is the search for investing in things that are undervalued. It's right. not just investing, right? So like index investing is not value investing, but it is investing, right? Because you're not really focusing on what the value of things are. You're just trying to get like the market return or something like that. You know, I want to distinguish between what I said and I think what maybe people interpreted. I wasn't saying that value investors are going to do poorly or that value investing is not going to be a successful strategy. I actually think it's going to be a very successful strategy. And I think that we are in progress of performing much better than we did over the last period of time. But what I'm saying is value investing as an industry has been decimated. And I don't really fully see it coming back. I mean, it used to be that you had this active management industry and it was very large. And everybody was following Peter Lynch or whatever the heck they were doing. And they were trying to figure out what the best stocks to buy. 
And you would look back and say, wow, you know, I wish it was like 1955 and I could be Warren Buffett and there's nobody reading annual reports but me. And I can read these things and find companies at three times earnings and four times earnings that nobody's paying any attention to. And I can call my broker and, you know, this, this isn't so hard if you can actually just, you know, read some financial statements and, and, and you have the time, you know, to actually do that. So the, the, the industry, you know, mushroomed and it became a profession that a lot of people pursued. And when I entered the business, I, I was trained by somebody who was a value investor. And I had started a fund that was a value investing fund. And I hewed to the long-term view that over time, value investing outperforms growth investing. Um, because you have a margin for safety. So when you make a mistake in a value stock, you get most of your money back. Whereas in a growth stock, as it was taught at the time, they were more of momentum stocks. And so when the news changed, you had to get out relatively quickly. And that was very hard for, for those investors uh, to do. And in fact, as a long short strategy, if you could figure out what was going to trigger growth investors to leave something, you could actually do pretty well on both sides of the market. And so the original years of Greenlight, of, of my fund that I managed, was essentially understanding this whole dynamic. So on the long side, what we would do is we would find situations that were cheap and they were misunderstood and they were value investments. But there was a little bit of a catch, right? Because they were misunderstood, maybe they were going to do, they were going to be maybe not great companies, but maybe they'd be a little bit less bad than people thought. And not only that, there were hundreds of people following them. And it doesn't mean that they were large cap companies. The, if you were on a conference call of a one or two or three billion dollar, uh, cap company back in, you know, 1995 to 2005, you could rest assured that there were 30 mutual fund analysts on the call and everyone was taking notes and they were sending reports to their portfolio managers and competing for who could have the best insight as to when their fund should buy. And so if we could figure out if we could buy something at 11 times earnings and have it do 10% better than expected, so it was really at 10 times earnings and have it be re-rated to 15 times earnings, we could make 50 or 60% on a stock over a couple of years without really taking too much risk. And, and, and that could happen. And it would happen all the time because once these uh, long-only investors at these big shops realized, hey, it's not so bad and 10 or 11 isn't the right multiple for this. Then they have tons of money and they come in and they buy it every single day. And over six months, the stock gets re-rated. And if you have two or three of them competing for it, it can actually happen kind of, you know, kind of quickly. And that was basically our business. And um, what happened is, is, is around 2016, I'm going to call, you know, there's always the argument about indexing, which, which ties right into this whole story, right. which is indexing is not inherently like a bad idea, right? You, um, you get the average result, you get it with low transaction fees, you get it with low taxes, you probably come out ahead of the average. And if you can't figure out how to do this yourself, you know, what's wrong with getting basically average with low taxes and low fees, that's probably above average. And if you don't have the, the fear and the greed that comes from making your own individual decisions and all that emotion, which costs a lot of people a lot of money, you can do really well with indexes. But indexing, the inherent view is, is that it is the price, um, it's a price taker. It's not the price maker. 
In other words, you're allowing all the other market participants to figure out what everything is worth, and then you get to participate. And so the consultants have ultimately won this battle on the indexing. And around 2015 or 2016, huge amounts of flows uh, went from active management to passive management. And it was literally like $3 trillion in the, um, you know, in the United States alone, which was an enormous percentage of the overall market. And what that did was is it created an impossible situation for value investing. And here's the, re- here's the reason why. Because you say, well, if money goes into an index, it's going proportionally to the market cap. So the highly valued things get more money. The lower valued things get less money. But if, if 1% of the entire S&P gets new money, every stock gets 1%. And so every stock should do about the same. But that's not really what happened here. Because that would be the idea that it was a new money flow into the index. What actually happened is, is there was another side to the trade. And the trade, the other side was the redemption from the active managers. So if you say, well, what do the active managers hold? Well, let's just say hypothetically, just to make math work easily. Let's just say there's 500 stocks in the S&P, which there happen to be. And let's say that 498 of them are correctly valued. But one of them is overvalued and one of them is undervalued. So the one, they're both really only worth 10, but one of them is trading at five and the other one is trading at 20, right? So then you say, well, let's look at the universe of active managers and give them $25 to invest in those two stocks. How are they going to allocate that $25? And you, the, the knee trick is to say, well, they put all $25 in the, in the undervalued stock, but it's not really true because some of them maybe owned the overvalued stock from lower levels or they like the story. Some of them probably can't figure out which is the undervalued stock or which is the over, under overvalued stock. Some of them, their strategy might be technical or other type of thing in nature and might emphasize companies or, or just be less valuation sensitive relating to narratives or themes or, or whatnot. So if you look, took that $25 and you stipulated that $20 would go into the $5 stock, and $5 would go into the $20 stock across the universe of active managers. If you take that $25 out as you switch from active to passive and you redeploy it into the index, what happens to the $25? Well, the overvalued stock gets $5 of selling and $20 of buying. And the undervalued stock gets uh, $20 of selling and $5 of buying. So what happens now is the $20 stock is now at 21 and the $5 stock is now at four and a half. And everybody looks at this situation and says, oh my God, the remaining active investors underperformed again. They had $20 in the stock that went from five to four and a half. And they were underweight, the one that went from 20 to 21. And then they look at it and say, well, let's do some more passive because this active thing isn't working out. And then even within active, even within active, you're not going to redeem from the guy who owned the stock at 20 that just went to 21. He's doing pretty well. In fact, he probably overperformed because he was overweight the thing that went up the most. Right. And so you, you, this circulated to the tune of like $3 trillion. 
And the result of this was, was essentially like in 2018, it was most acute for us. And other people may have seen it in slightly different times. But over a period of about this four or five year period, value underperformed dramatically because of this shift. And I certainly didn't appreciate what was going on uh, at the time. Like I, I just was like, my stocks are doing well. Like what's these companies are doing well and they're kind of cheap and they just get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But if you looked in 2018, if you broke at the beginning of the year, companies by decile evaluation, pick it price to book or price to earning, literally the top decile went up the most. The next decile went up the second most. The bottom deciles went down. And so if you were short the top decile in valuation at the beginning of the year, you probably lost 20 or 30% on your short. And if you were long the bottom decile, you lost 20% on your long. And so you had it going, and this was across like 50 stocks per decile. And so it didn't really matter what you picked. If you were valuation sensitive, you got killed. And this caused essentially half the demise of the of the value investing industry. And so what then happened is, is because of all the passive flows, which were all the indexes are all outperforming, in addition to the few active managers who are emphasizing overvalued stocks, um, what happened then is, is the mutual funds and the long onlys, they had to cut their fees. Because if you were getting eight, paying eight basis points for an index and a point for a long only uh, account, uh, and the long only account is continually underperforming. If you want to retain your assets, you cut that percent to 40 basis points. And now you have fewer active assets and you have fewer fees. So you cut your staff. And I've told you before, maybe if there were 20 analysts listening to all of these conference calls on all of these companies, if you do, if you look at that analysis today, it, it rounds to zero. There's like nobody there. So what that means is, 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 is that as an industry, as a profession, as figuring this out, the number of people employed in this effort are down dramatically. The assets pursuing this initiative are down dramatically. The field is kind of cleared open. And in a way, it sort of feels like for those few of us who are still here, like, wow, didn't we always want to be there in 1955 when there was nobody else doing this work uh, along these ways? And so I'm like super excited. I like I like feel like this is a great environment. I just have to realize that I'm not paying 11 times earnings for something thinking some long only guy is going to pay 15 times. I'm going to pay four times earnings, just like I got to do it in 1955. And it's going to work out great. And I have no idea who's going to buy the stock for me. But I know if I pay four times earnings and the company's buying back 15 or 20% of the stock, Sometime in the next four or five years, unless the company falls apart or I get the analysis wrong, which I'm always at risk for, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a, a very good return. So I'm, I'm like super excited about getting through this difficult part of the dynamic, which persists to this day. But I think I appreciate it more. And I also think it's largely behind us. Like I think most of the money that's going to switch from active to passive has, has made that, um, that adjustment. So I know it's a very long answer, but that was... Uh, that was what I was really trying to trying to say uh, in the in the interviews. That's a spectacular description of what's happened. I mean, I think all of us who have any sort of value bent, we're scratching our heads for a long time. And for me, understanding the passive component made it at least clear what we were sort of up against. But I think the way you broke that down really made it um, really understandable. One of the things that I've been thinking is part of also. I think what was at work on top of that, 
what attracted people's standpoint was the um, this period that the uh, money that came in during the lockdowns created where there was a mad dash for the TAM. You know, it was the it was this cycle's version of eyeballs in 2000 and the mad dash to try to find anything that had, you know, growth, regardless of whether it had profitability. And of course, I think that's kind of crumbling or that's been crumbling. I think that mania is probably behind us. And it occurs to me that meanwhile, the businesses that are going to do well because people need stuff, whether it's fertilizer or copper or, you know, a lot of these, what we used to think of as cyclical capital intensive businesses, all look to be rather well positioned. And at the same time, they're quite cheap. I, I looked through a handful of the names that you own and, you know, there's Besides being cheap, there's a common theme of the kinds of businesses they are. And I was wondering if you thought that perhaps as we go forward over the next six or nine months and the kinds of businesses that are now cheap start to do well because they're actually businesses that are well positioned, if that couldn't flip and create a new leadership change out of this era that only seemed growth was the only thing that mattered. That's kind of a complicated question, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, let me let me just elaborate on what you said, because I agree with it. <laughs> and, and see if I can expand on it in a, in, a, in a small in a small way. What I was describing in terms of the flip from passive, I'm sorry, from active to passive, the, 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 the high point of that, in my view, was maybe 2015 to 2019. By the time you got to the COVID situation, I think most of that was behind us. And then it was replaced by a new group of investors who essentially came in because they were staying at home and they were getting payments not to work and they had too much time on their hands. And you know they decided to punt a, a bit in, in the market or in crypto or whatever they wanted to do. And it was a good way to occupy their time. And they were making a lot of money, which made it really, um, really a lot of fun. So what you wind up with is you've got three types of investors, none of whom are paying attention to, to value, right? You have the people who I say, you know, um, uh, cannot do valuation. Like that's this group. I'm, I don't want to put anybody down individually, but collectively, these are not trained financial analysts that know what a price earnings multiple is or a price book ratio is or how to calculate a return on capital or to seriously evaluate the economic prospects of a company. I mean, they can follow the Peter Lynch principle and say, look, I mean, if I, if I like Nike shoes, I can, I should buy Nike stock. I, and I have no problem with that. That's always been there, but this group that came into the market, I mean, they, they were, they were not uh, price uh, capable of doing an evaluation. Then you had the index funds, which, which obviously structurally are valuation and different. And then you had all the strategies, whether it's algorithmics or technical strategies or whatnot, that were our valuation insensitive. Also, some of the really, really speculative funds that did extremely well for a couple of years buying all of these bubble things, you know, they were not uh, value-oriented at all. They had to be completely value indifferent. And if you're happy owning a stock at twice what it was worth, you were still happy owning it at five times what it was worth because you probably didn't even know the difference. You just knew that it was you know higher and you were happy that you'd owned it as it went from right. twice what it was worth to five times what it was worth. I, my, the, my line is, is you know, twice as silly price isn't twice as silly. It's, it's, it's still silly. So that's, you know, that kind of came in and ran itself, uh, you know, up, up through its peak. And, you know, now the, 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 the market cycle has turned. And so now we're, now we're in a, in a bear market, which happens at the end of any of this kind of, uh, you know, uh, speculative boom. 
David, the idea of cycles is obviously fundamental to markets. It has been it's fundamental to humanity. And, we, and we've, we've talked about the cycle from 1950s, Warren Buffett style investing, and here we are again. We've talked about, you know, Bill saw the tech boom, we saw the bust after that, and now we're talking about the end of a bubble and the bust that inevitably follows it. When we look at the bubble in passive, how do you think that ends, or perhaps it doesn't end, perhaps it morphs based on what you've said about the difference between active and passive. Is the passive bubble different simply because it's so all-encompassing? It's it's not a bubble. The problem is the, the thing is, is is they've won the argument. Like you're not we're not okay. going to convince people that are on the passive team to switch back to the active team. People are going to continue to invest in passive. Like the argument of low fees and low taxes is just, you know, in, in low transaction costs. Is it's it's an argument that has a broad um, appeal, and yes, they do wind up owning twenty dollars of the twenty dollars stock and five dollars of the five dollars <laughs> stock, and so there's a misallocation of capital that you know that comes from that. But in the grand scheme, I don't expect they'll ever like um, like really sort it out, you know. But to come back to Bill's point, which I which I which I dropped, is. The result of this is you have a very bifurcated market and you have these stocks that are sort of valuation indifferent and they're owned by shareholders who are valuation indifferent and they have almost no cost of equity. Some And some of them are good businesses or good stories or whatnot that the software is eating the world narrative, you know, attracted a lot of money and for good reason. I mean, the idea that you can create a company and because of the internet, you can have a global market instantaneously or you can have a network that has a network effect and becomes more valuable as every person comes on the network in an exponential basis. Like these arguments are real arguments and they have led to some really awesome companies and some really great and you know great investments. But the result is is that any company that had those kind of characteristics at some point it became valued at a point that was completely disconnected from um you know, any reasonable assessment of, of even valuable network effects and, and so on and so forth. And just because, you know, one company can become, you know, Facebook or something like that doesn't mean that every company with that opportunity can, or that, that framework becomes the next uh, Facebook. And they're all valued kind of the, 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 same, uh, the same way. On the other side of that is you have a huge deprivation of capital from old, boring businesses because everybody wants to own the software is eating the world companies and they have those companies have access to debt because the capital markets were good and the you know the fed was there and the bond market was there and they could and the banks were there and you could borrow all you wanted to grow your business but if you didn't want to leverage uh you know your cost of equity is your is your ticket to growth and if the market is rewarding your business because it's not one of these exponential opportunities you know with a 5 pe or a 7 pe it means that your cost of equity is 20% or it's 14%. And that means that if your normal, you know, expected return on an industrial product might be 12%, it's not higher than the cost of equity that's implied by your stock price. And that assumes that your earnings weren't going to grow. When I say 20% or 14%, if there's a little bit of growth there, the cost of equity is even higher than that. And so what happens then is, is the companies are essentially told by their shareholder. If they'd like to continue managing these companies, you need to return the capital to us at a 20% return than to invest in a new industrial product a project at a 12% return. And so the math suggests then that you don't get growth. 
And you don't, and as a result is you have a structural underinvestment in these companies, which makes them very attractive to me because normally, you know, high returns attract additional investment. But here they don't. Here, high returns just just uh, attract faster return of capital because if the earnings double because the prices have gone up, they don't say, "Oh, we're going to invest more for 2027." They say, "Look at that, we're earning double. We can buy twice as much stock back this year. We can instead of me getting a 14% return on capital, I'll get a 28% return on capital." And 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 the stock doesn't go up because there's nobody noticing and there's no no buyers. Now maybe it doesn't go down as much as some other things. Are going down in the bear market because these companies were not subject to bubble type of speculation, and their shareholders have mostly been redeemed out of these long only active uh, managed funds. But you wind up and you have the company, and they're buying you know tremendous uh, you know percentages of the stock. But you wind up with a misallocation, and so because we're, we're depriving necessary businesses of equity at a reasonable price. Because and this is a market failure, and it's and this is causing some of the inflation. I mean, we're going to eventually turn to macro here and and celebrate yeah. Ben Bernanke's Nobel Prize and all of that. I'm sure, but before we but before we get to that, um, you know the, the the deprivation here. You know, it's caused this is causing inflation. I mean, we haven't. You know, I saw a thing just yesterday. You know, the price of oil is one price. And then the price of gas is another price. And look at how much more gas has gone up than oil. Well, we haven't built an oil refinery right. in this country in like 40 years. So maybe there's just a refinery shortage, you know? And we should have allowed, you know, those oil refinery companies to have PEs that were more than four times so that they were and give them some environmental permit and some encourage them to, you know, expand their business. So we wouldn't have such a gap between uh, crude price and refined product price. And you see that up and down the real economy where we yeah. don't have new cement plants. We don't have new paper plants. We don't, uh, God forbid, I say we don't have new coal mines, but we need all of these things because, you know, we want to eat and we don't want to be cold in the winter and we want to light our houses and, and, and stuff like this. And so you, you have shortages and this is part of what is driving structural um, inflation. And so it seems that going forward, those businesses have a chance to do well as they have, but it might stand out on a relative basis as some of the other ones that were so popular don't do as well. And it seems to me it's possible that out of that period, we get a leadership change where these kinds of businesses no one cared about. People say, wow, they're doing better. And we get a, a shift in what's quote unquote popular. You're not counting on that, obviously, because you've already articulated why you don't need to. But it seems to me that's sort of a tailwind of leadership change could develop prospectively. I, I'm not counting on it. And the reason I'm not counting on it is I genuinely believe there's nobody home. I believe there's, it's the tree falls in the forest, doesn't make a sound if nobody hears it. And these companies can earn whatever they're going to earn. And that, you know, whether the people who own the software is eating the world companies lose their shirt or they don't lose their shirt in the down, I don't see them deciding what we really need here are some paper companies and some cement companies and some oil refineries and stuff like this. I, I don't see it. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. You mentioned macro and I was kind of interesting if we zoom out because obviously the, the macro environment is part of what's brought us to where we are today. And you mentioned the wonderful job that Bernanke's done, which got him a Nobel Prize. I was curious, how does this period of central bank sort of overactivity end? And we're starting to see the BOJ has its hands full trying to, you know, play the game they're playing. The Bank of England's had its problems. 
But meanwhile, everyone seems to feel like that, you know, the Fed who has made plenty of mistakes in the past is not going to make any mistakes going forward. And they're going to get this inflation back in the bottle and all that's going to work out. Do you have a view as to how this period ends and how it ends for the Fed and, and all the jelly donuts they've given everyone? And will they have their chance to be discredited as the other central banks are in the process of becoming? That's a really good question. And um, I don't know the answer. We're going to have to just kind of see how the how the movie plays itself out. What we can observe is, you know, going really probably back to 1987 with the stock market crash, or at least that's as long as I've been paying attention, you know, when, when the Fed has been there to um, bail things out uh, rather than allow systems to, you know, risk to be absorbed by the private sector. Um, every time they do it, they effectively kick the can. And every time they kick the can, they effectively reduce their degree of freedom for action down the line. There's a, there's a direct trade-off. Every can kick reduces your degree of freedom by one. And so what's happening is, and we've seen it a number of times, and I'm not going to chronicle this every time the, the authorities have intervened, is the degrees of freedom have been limited. And so they're getting in a tighter and tighter spot. And I don't know whether it's to the point where this down cycle is going to be where the cycle overwhelms the uh, their ability to manage the cycle or whether they will succeed and find one more degree of freedom and somehow manage to get the situation under control. And, you know, we'll be waiting for the, we'll be watching and seeing what happens the, the following time. And that's what, that's what the, the, the excitement is in, in getting to live through this. We, we, we see what happens, you know, as it goes. David, how, how do you as an investor manage the increasing potential damage of exactly the situation you've described? Because if, if for as long as time you've been able to just say the Fed have got this or the central bank have got this and not really worry about the downside. But as you pointed out, the quantum of if they get it wrong is increasing with every kick of the can. How do you as an investor go about managing that heightened volatility risk? Well, first of all, we have some tail protection that we put on. You know, I own a bunch of gold. I'm not really a gold bug. Um, my grandpa was a gold bug. And my grandma on the other side was not a gold bug. And she owned like Nike and Coca-Cola and IBM. And sometime in 2007, I think I gave a speech explaining why my grandma's investment style was way better than grandpa's style because grandpa said, well, you know, eventually there'll be an inflation. And I said, well, that's not a reasonable time horizon eventually. <laughs> and then we got to the financial crisis and I saw how they were socializing the risk and moving it from the private sector to the government balance sheet. And I came to the view that, all right, we're beginning to get into the time frame where maybe we should pay attention a little bit more to what grandpa Ben was saying. And that's probably proved to be a little bit early. Nothing horrible has happened. In fact, we had a 13-year bull market and gold probably you know, almost doubled from what I paid for it, which isn't awful. It's not fantastic. I'm glad nothing so terrible happened. I mean, I think it's you don't want to be sitting there like rooting for something terrible to happen. I think it's like a little bit like be careful like what you wish for, because I think we're all pretty lucky, privileged people that have pretty nice, you know, day-to-day lives. And, you know, sitting around and saying, I'm really rooting for an awful financial crisis to, you know, show that 
you know, Ben Bernanke made a mistake 15 years ago. You know, this is really, I think it's a really bad philosophy. And so I've tried not to adapt it, even though I'm conscious that I really think he did a pretty bad job. And I think that, that uh, we've been not blessed with great uh, political and, and financial, um, financial leaders. So I try to mostly construct a portfolio from the bottoms up, you know, filled with these, you know, ideas of things that I think are over earning or misunderstood and so on and so forth. And we try to short things that we think are overvalued and deteriorating. And then on top of that, we have some macro investments. And I don't know exactly how to measure it, but yeah, so we can be short some yen or we can be long some gold or we can have some interest rate stuff and some credit default swaps on some indexes and, you know, and know whether we're in a bear market or a bull market. And when we're in a bull market, if I can get that right, we want to be more net long. And when we're in a bear market, we want to be much less uh, net long. And, and that's just kind of how I manage it. And I do the best I can. It's not going to be perfect and I'm going to be wrong a whole bunch. Given the inflation that we've seen and, and given the, the currency chaos in the world, people are always asking me, well, how come gold hasn't done better, particularly in the last year, year and a half, as inflation's proven to be much higher than the authorities expected? Do you think that's a subset of the value uh, problem, like people just don't care? Or do you think that's, that they maybe have too much confidence in the central bank's ability to get the genie back in the bottle and there'll be a delayed reaction down the road? I know, obviously, you don't know for sure, but I would imagine you've given it some thought. Do you have a preferred uh, interpretation of what's happened? Well, let me let me say a couple of things. You know, we own a bunch of gold. And let's say it's at, I don't know, 1600 and something dollars today. You know, would I be happier if gold was at 2500 than 1600 and we could make 50% on, on what we have? Absolutely. But I don't know if I would be happier if gold was at 25000 or at 50,000. Right. And I know right. people talk right. about those things, right. but I'm not really sure how my day-to-day life is going to be or the day-to-day life of other people in my life is going to be if we're walking around with $50,000 gold. So I'm not really rooting like for, the, for that kind of yeah. uh, that kind of an outcome. I'm, it, we may get that outcome because it doesn't matter what I'm rooting for, right? I mean, I root for a football team on Sunday and sometimes they lose. So um, <laughs> this year they're losing a lot and to like the Giants and the Jets, it's horrible. Uh, that would be the Green Bay Packers. Anyway, um, just to uh, just to come to that in terms of you know why hasn't it been so terrible? Well, people have confidence. The market as a whole has confidence in the central banks. Whether that's rightly or wrongly placed, you know, time will time will tell. But the people who've said that the central central banks fail, they they have not yet been proven right. There hasn't been a failure yet of a major central bank. They've done whatever it takes. They've kicked the can down the road. Maybe they've sacrificed some future degrees of freedom in order to get that. But you haven't had the crisis that says, oh, I really needed to have um, you know, all of this gold in order to you know, protect. I mean, my grandmother, my grandpa Ben's uh, wife, you know, they used to keep gold like in the dining room, the legs like the dining room table. And I remember my grandma saying, I have this Kruger and here, it's an ounce of gold. I hope when I get old, I can give this to somebody and they'll give me a hot dog. And I was thinking to myself, well, you already are old. But that's not, that wasn't really the, <laughs> that wasn't really the point of, of, what, of what she's saying. We haven't reached that point. I hope we never do reach that point. I think it would be terrible if we... Um, if we actually, if we actually got to that, that being said, the policies that have been put in place by the large central banks and the large fiscal authorities of the world over the last while are exceedingly aggressive. And you can see, as you pointed out, that there's some risk in the 
Bank of England right now. And the bank of, uh, the, the, the Japanese bank is clearly, uh, you know, in, in maybe some, some risk with its currency. And there's no philosophical or theoretical reason why it can't happen, uh, here in, in the United States. And, and I hope that it doesn't, but it, it very well might. We've talked about how early investing has shifted and kind of, as you say, it's, it's, it's declined in popularity. The other side of that equation is something you've uh, been very high profile about over the years is short selling. Um, you, you touched on it a few moments ago. And obviously, you, you, there was a very high profile short in Lehman that you got right. Before that, the allied capital story that you laid out, which to me is arguably the single best investment case I've ever seen. I thought it was just so beautifully put. But the nature of that has changed. Obviously, after that, then you've had your battles with Elon over Tesla, uh, very visibly again. So we've already documented how value investing has changed. How has short selling changed in that same time frame? Yeah, short selling. My views on discussing short selling have unfortunately evolved. I, I, I started with a view and it may have been young or naive or possibly the world has changed or maybe it's both of those things. I was of the view that market participants discussing their views relating to stocks was a good. You know, whether you're right or you're wrong, whether people agree with right. you, whether people don't disagree with you, the way we figure out what things are worth is by discussing them and arguing and then letting the chips fall as they do and let it time play out. And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. And I've come to learn that uh, that doesn't work so well in the current environment relating to short selling. I think that the feedback I, I get or people get when they engage in arguing about individual companies is disproportionately counterproductive. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little bit threatening. Uh, it's not really adding to the mix because everybody's kind of made up their mind in what they think. <laughs> and so yeah. you're not really going to persuade anybody and nobody's really going to persuade you. And sharing all of this discussion is not leading to like improved market efficiency. And it's not leading. I used to sometimes look, sometimes if I pitch something and you get like the wrong feedback, I can change my mind. Like, right. like I can say, I think this is really, really terrible. And then the market can say, well, we heard what you had to say. And maybe it's not so terrible. And then maybe somebody calls me up and says, look, I own the stock that you're short. And I think you're wrong. And let's talk about it. And I've had that conversation. And I've left that conversation saying, all right, maybe this is not quite what I thought that it was. And maybe I'm the one who needs to adjust my position. So I used to benefit from this. And I used to think it was a positive part of my process. But once we got to the top of the, the, the mania um, a, a couple of years ago, the way that the discussion of shorts was being handled in the public discourse uh, led me to believe that this isn't something that is still positive. And I don't really think it's something that I want to be part of at, at, at anymore. I don't believe that it's, that it's in anybody's interest, including my interest, to be you know, engaged in, in these kinds of things. Now, is that engaged in the discussion or in seeking out companies that you think are overvalued and you think will go lower and sell them? Yeah, no, seeking out the argument. Like, I don't think right. that the public discussion of these things is continuing yeah, to be a, 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 net, uh, a net positive. We're continuing to short companies, um, but we're keeping our thoughts and reasoning more to ourselves and just kind of allowing those positions to either work or not work and maybe not benefiting from the feedback we were getting on by, by being public about things. But I think it's a, it's a better way to, um, 
to go about things, at least in the current environment. Maybe someday it'll change back. I don't want to... I've learned enough about myself to say, I, I never say like never. So like, I'm not going to say like, I'm never going to discuss another short again, or I've stopped discussing shorts. But for the time being, which may, which has been going on for a couple of years now and could easily extend, I don't know, indefinitely, I don't really wish to get into arguments with people about stocks. You know, I, I had a similar uh, viewpoint back when I was running my short fund. And I naively thought, <laughs> particularly back in the original equity bubble, and I would go on TV and I would explain why Gateway was in trouble or whoever the heck it was. And I thought, well, I was actually doing a service. And of course, that was extremely naive because nobody really cared. And, you know, they only care afterwards that, oh, you said that one was a bad one. It was a bad one. And to me, the environment is 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 completely changed. I can't imagine what it'd be like to run a short fund now. And I think also the for me, the QE and the things the central banks have done also made it particularly difficult so I've sort of find that the shorts that you can find that, that cause you less grief are the ones no one knows about and not talking about them and being in ones that people don't really know about makes the management of the position far, far easier. I'm, I'm gathering you've sort of felt the same way. And I don't know if it's easier. I liked it how it was. I, I think it was for a long time constructive. But uh, ultimately, I think that that just, that just changed. And so I'm just changing. I'm just changing with it. And look, shorts in general in a in a bull market are going to do poorly. <laughs> and in a bear market, they're going to do really well. And um, you know that I think that's the nature of bear and bull markets. At the end of those bull markets, there's a transition from impatient capital to patient capital. Necessarily, as you, as you talked about at the beginning of the show here, there's that air pocket in between when people panic out of the stuff, the momentum stuff. How do you manage that transition as an investor and the conversations you have to have with investors? One would imagine that the majority of your investors understand that you are patient capital by the very definition of what you do, but there's still that air pocket where you have to try and have that conversation with people and say, look, what worked and being impatient doesn't work. Now you have to be patient. That's a very tough shift for people to make when they expect to results immediately. Well, I would say that what you said is right about my remaining investors, but I don't think that was true of my <laughs> investor base uh, broadly. You know, we had a number of years where things didn't go as well as I would have liked. And frankly, as some of this change that I described at length at the beginning of this podcast was happening, I didn't appreciate the dynamic. Right. So I was looking at these stocks and you say, you know, here's this company and it's at, you know nine times earnings and look how great the earnings were and the stock goes up. You know, five percent the day they announce the earnings, which validates the thesis, and then the next day it starts rolling back down, and it goes down for the next sixty days of trading, which is three months, and then the next quarter you repeat the exercise again, and you say, "Wow!" At the beginning of the year, it was you know they were going to earn a dollar, and they actually earned a dollar fifty, and I thought the stock was great at eleven on the dollar, but now it's at nine on the dollar fifty. So the PE's gone from eleven to six and they've beaten and raised four quarters in a row. And and all that's happened is is all of these long onlys have been dealing getting redemptions. And I couldn't explain all of that. And so we had impatient investors and we had a lot of uh, a lot of redemptions and that was fine. And I'm not like upset about that at all. I didn't half the time I wanted to fire myself. Like we weren't doing well and I couldn't really, I didn't really understand why we weren't doing well, but the results were awful. I thought they were awful. And 
I can understand why people, you know, wanted to, who had chosen to invest with, with us had decided to go invest somewhere else. And it's a free market. And this isn't like a loyalty contest. Every year you sign up and you, you know, you pay your fee and then you decide if you want to do it again next year. And so a lot of people chose not to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine with everything that happened there. I wish I'd understood what was happening in real right. time. But you know, and I, but that's the that's the nature of things. That makes it um, that makes it difficult setting up now, right? I think we're in a spot where where assets are going to go towards patient capital. And what I've been doing as the bear market has been developing is I've just been allowing my exposure to come down. I've I've brought uh, in a bear market in general. You want to have less exposure, and if I begin the year one hundred and thirty percent gross long, I'm probably ninety percent gross long today. And I see that coming down uh, in the next couple of weeks. I'm hoping the Twitter deal closes and I get that money back. And then, you know, I'll be less than 90 gross long. And I'm just going to, I'm just sort of building dry powder because I do think that there's an opportunity set up to, to, to find even more attractive investments. And if I'm fully invested when that opportunity comes, I won't be able to, um, to pursue it. You mentioned the Twitter deal. Obviously, were we down to about a week away before it's supposed to close next week? Yeah, I think it will close next week. So this latest maneuver of the government saying they might look into it, they can't really do anything in that short run to disrupt it. I mean, I've sort of been of the view similar to you that I didn't see how he was going to get out of this. You know, a lot of people have this Machiavellian viewpoints that, well, he's he's gone and tried to piss off the U.S. government to try to get himself out of the Twitter deal. And I don't know if you go through those mental gymnastics or not, but uh, do, do you have any sort of view on that? Yeah, he might, he might be trying. I don't think that that will prevail. I think the deal is going to close next Friday. Um, and, and I don't know when you're going to release this podcast. I might even be wrong before you release the podcast or if you <laughs> release it really soon, we'll know right after. Uh, you know, the, the thing about predictions about the future is, you know, you don't want to make a clear prediction or what the time is. And here you're talking about something that's going to happen next Friday. <laughs> so either we're going to be right or we're going to be wrong. And I'll just say, I think I'm right. But if it turns out that I'm wrong, it won't be the first time that I'm wrong. And, um, and I'm prepared to, to deal with whatever the out, whatever the outcome is from a technical legal process perspective. I don't really think the government can do anything to stop the deal. Like if they really truly became upset and said Elon Musk should not own Twitter, um, you know, for national security concerns or whatever that was, setting aside that that would really piss off the half the country that is uh, on the right that would that is excited for him doing that, and it would seem very very political. But like setting that aside, let's just say they came to that conclusion. I think they'd be more likely to try to get him to divest it after he sold after he bought it than to try to stop a merger that's essentially completed and is like five days away from closing. Fair enough. Thanks. David, you want to now record saying you don't think the deal's going to close and then we'll make sure we release this after the after the deal and that way you're going to look like a genius. I, I, <laughs> I, I love it. The we right can, one we can, <laughs> what are you talking about? We can do that. We can make like dozens of those kinds of things. <laughs> <That's right, sure. laughs> so so let, me, let me switch the conversation to this question of inflation, David, because it's, it's something that is dividing everybody. Like everybody's divided about everything these days. But this idea that inflation is, is going to come down or the Fed are going to pivot is the one topic that Bill and I cannot avoid with anybody we talk to. Where do you stand on this, this subject of the Fed pivot? And is it inflation related or not, do you think? Look, I think, I think there's an open question. And the open question is this. 
is the Fed going to succeed or whatever, the policymakers? I'll define it broader than the Fed yeah. because I actually think that the fiscal policymakers have a big right. role here too. And they're happy to sit on their hands and say, oh, the Fed will take care of it. And that may or may not make a mistake or whatnot. But the, the question is, is will the authorities get the inflation under control or will they have to address what the bond, the bond market or the capital market? And... You know, it's clear that they're not going to intervene and switch gears because the S&P has fallen a certain amount. Like, they're abundantly, abundantly clear that there's no equity put. But at the end of the day, they can talk about the dual mandate, which is, you know, inflation on one hand, employment on the other hand. And they want to talk about that like 99% of the time. But they have one superseding mandate, which is more important than that, which is to make the Treasury appear solvent. And so if the capital markets decide that the treasury might not appear solvent, like this is kind of what we just saw what happened in the UK, it doesn't matter what they think is going on in inflation. They have to act uh, towards that. So the, the, the way that I think this plays out is one of two things. Either the, the current regime gets the situation more or less under control, and I'm not going to quibble whether they decide to redefine inflation or whether it comes from 8% to 3%, but they basically get it more under control than not. Or does the market look at the situation and say, uh, you know, the bond market takes it out or the currency takes it out, and then they have to react to that. And if they have to, if they have to, in that case, if they quote pivot to defend things, Right. Then you're going to then then they're going to um, then we're going to have a real problem. And then the inflation is likely to really take off. Right. If they pivoted tomorrow, um, you know, what happens to oil prices and, and, and other things? I think they, they, they go you know, vertical. And so they have to be very careful. And so I think they're, they're likely to continue on these long lines as long as it's just the S&P that's going down. I think they're fine. And I think they can tan, stand a certain amount of problem in the in the bond market, but when it gets to the point where the treasury is wondering where they're going to, who's going to bid on the next auction um, at a price that the government will appear solvent, uh, then then they have to pivot. So, do you think these rumblings about uh, issuing T bills to reduce the issuance or buyback longer dated paper, which has kind of only been a trial balloon right now, if that started to become a drumbeat and a storyline that would be the first steps down that path. I would think, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree on okay. that one. Okay, I think I think there's always been an issue of on the run government debt versus off the run government debt, right? And if you buy the on the run ten year or the on the run thirty year, there's very very good liquidity. And if you want to buy something, if you if you own something and it goes from on the run to off the run, which after six months it does, it suddenly becomes much less liquid, and then it gets devalued. And I think that that has become a bigger situation right now. The liquidity in the off the run treasuries is there, so if the treasury comes in and says we're going to buy off the run treasuries, and then we're going to reissue them as on the run treasuries. I don't really see that as a as a pivot due okay. to due to this. What I'm talking about here is more what happened in the gilt market mm -hmm. or you know where you see just kind of a parabolic move in rates and you know the treasury has a deficit that's large and they need to finance it and you know who is going to if they can't sell the new on the run treasuries without gapping them out 
too, too far. I think that's when the, the Fed has to has to switch. David, do you think the situation in the UK is specific to the UK? Because if you look at what happened, A, an almost carbon copy of it happened in the UK in the 70s, in the mid-70s, leading up to the IMF bailout. But also, if you look at the metrics, it would suggest that just about every central bank is a poorly worded budget away from a very similar outcome. Yeah, that's. I think that's right. Look, a lot of what we've been saying here is the United States isn't so bad because we're at 125% debt to GDP. And look at Japan, and they're at twice <laughs> that. And nothing so terrible has happened. Well, look, the yen's gone from 115 to 150. And they actually have inflation there, and they're keeping their rates like at zero or near zero despite this. And the world is taking it out on the currency. There's nothing that prevents the yen from going to 200 or 500 or 1,000 or something or, or something like that. And, and, and if that turns out to be the case, you know, there's nothing that prevents the market from saying, well, we were comfortable with the United States as long as it was half of Japan because nothing bad happened there. But look at that. After 40 years, something bad happened there. And so now we have to have to revisit this. Like the, the, the chance of a real problem here, which again, I'm not like rooting for, the, the, it's it's high. I mean, it's not like more likely than not, but it's it's not in the remote tail like it might have been twenty years ago. You know, Japan's been a fascination for me for quite a while because of the fact that the uh, you know the BOJ they obviously they bought half the bonds, so it seems to me like you could make an argument that the Japanese debt to GDP is half what we think it is because the BOJ owns all these and they're never going to sell them. This was my main, this is my, this is my hobby horse forever. Here we go. And I, and I always wondered, well, what if they just kind of basically tore them up, the ones that they own and, you know, forgave the debt to be, and the debt to GDP, as I say, would be half of what it was. I always wondered what would happen. And I, I'd kind of given up worrying about that, quite frankly, right when it started to matter, of course. And it seems to me that if Kuroda had not insisted on maintaining yield curve control, Perhaps he might have gotten away with this, but for for whatever reason, he's decided to maintain that 10-year, 25 basis points. And now they're allowing the currency to collapse. And it looks like they're kind of, some of the chain events are starting to snowball as the local investors have to buy back their overhedged position because their treasuries went down. What do you think would have happened in Japan had they not um, uh, force everyone to stay at 25 basis point, might might they have gotten away with this? Was it just a can kick and something else was going to get them anyway? Well, the thing is, is if you allow the government debt interest rate to go up, it means that the debt servicing cost goes up and yeah. it becomes a bigger part of the budget and you've got structurally high deficit, right? And all the money that's sitting at the, where all these, these monetized bonds that are sitting at the central bank, you're right, it doesn't matter if they cancel them. But the point is, is essentially this was money that was printed in order to finance deficit spending in Japan over a number of decades. And it's kind of, you know, piled up. David, can I ask you, I've been dying to ask you about this, your poker career. It's switching tax slightly, <laughs> but based on what the central banks are doing, it's not such a big switch at all, I don't think. Just tell us a little bit about, I'm fascinated how you got into high stakes poker and how either it has helped you managing money or managing money has helped you managing risk at the poker table. I don't, I don't know that they help, but it's a, it's a similar skill set. Look, I always played games. Like my family was a game playing family. You know, we used to play games after dinner. My grandparents played games with us. We played these strategy games, card games, board games, 
you know, stuff like this. And I knew how to play all of the games. And sometime around college, I took up bridge and I was a bridge player. Uh, and, and, and I got pretty good at it for like a number of years. And, um, and bridge ultimately it's a phenomenal game, but ultimately the problem with bridge are the other bridge players, right? Because they tend to be older and they're very cantankerous. And, you know, then the question is, is like, how many hours do you want to spend with people who are grumpy? And so bridge is, it's less fun because of the, the company you keep when you play, play it competitively. Like you're just playing, like I used to play in my fraternity with my fraternity brothers yeah. and we would, we would play till the 2.30 sports center finished. And nice. so we played till three in the morning. We drank some beer and, and, you know, had some snacks and played some cards and it was fantastic. I loved it. But eventually we got more serious about it and I started going to tournaments. And ultimately the people, they're just too cranky. And so I got invited to a charity poker tournament a number of years ago, maybe around 2003 or 2004. And I didn't know from Texas Hold'em much, but I did know how to play poker. And I had a great run of cards and I made the like the final table of this thing and, and, and all these you know, people were there. And I had a great time. And I had a buddy who, who I didn't know played poker who showed up at the thing. And he said, well, you want to take up poker? And I said, yeah, this is really fun. So he gave me some books to read. And then it was, it was not illegal at the time. I played online a bit. And then I would play the game regularly at his house. And then after a couple of years of that, we said to each other, well, let's just do like a bucket list thing. Let's go play in the World Series of Poker in one right. year. And so we did. So we, we trained some more. We read some more books. We played a couple smaller tournaments. And then we went to the, the main event of the World Series and I had the, maybe the luckiest card run of cards I'll ever see in my life. And with 8,700 people, I finished 18th. And then like, I was, I'm like hooked, you know, that was just, that was just like fantastic. And I, and I realized, I, I realized that a lot of people are very good at playing poker. I have one advantage, which is that I don't really care. Right. And so I can be relaxed. Like for some people, it, it, the, the money really matters. And I'm very lucky that I never play poker for money that, uh, that matters to me. And even for people where the money doesn't, does matter. If poker is the main thing that they do, yeah. it's it, having success in the tournament validates them. Right. And so there's right. nothing that validates them more than doing well in the main event of the world series of poker or in a very high stakes event at the world series of poker. And so, you know, since they care more than I do, they make more mistakes as a result of wanting to do well. Because poker is one of these things that if you really, the more you really, really want to do well, the harder it is to do well. You have to be relaxed. You have to be willing to lose. You have to sometimes make a bad play. You sometimes have to bluff and lose all of your chips and say, geez, I came all the way out here and, and, and to lose uh, on that stupid play. And, and that's what happens over the, over the different years. And so the combination of you know, not caring about the money and not needing success at poker in order to validate how my year is going uh, puts me in a good spot to compete against some of the players who are actually far more skilled um, at the game than I am. Do you have to play a certain amount to keep yourself sharp? I compete in tennis tournaments. And if you don't practice, you can't do well. Not being a poker player, I enjoy watching it, but I don't play it. Don't you have to play a certain amount to keep yourself sharp? Or is that not the case? I'm sure you have to play a certain amount, but it's not a physical fitness kind of thing. It's not like if you don't get on the treadmill, 
every day, you're going to lose your cardio. You know, the game is kind of the game and the game evolves. And the people who are real insiders know the latest evolutions of strategy and computer stuff and, and all of the rest of it. And I've benefited because I, I play for charity. And since I play for charity, when I play in a big event, I usually get a coach. And, and usually someone's willing to coach me for free. And so I've actually had the benefit of being coached by half a dozen of the wow. top players in, in the world. And I'm also a person who responds really well to coaching. Like, I don't have to do it my way. I'm perfectly right. happy to say, all right, you're, we're, we're going to do a few practice sessions or a few lessons. And then we're going to come up with a strategy for how we're going to deal with this particular tournament. And I'm going to follow exactly what you say, coach, as best as I'm able to. And let's just kind of kind of see how it goes. And so I've benefited because I've had like some of the top people who have different styles, uh, you know, try to educate me on on how to do it. And then when I'm playing something that I'm not coached in, then I got to kind of figure it out myself what I what I want to do, which is kind of a blend of like all of the learnings that I've had from from these different coaches. So David, when you play and you say you don't need to care about the stuff, obviously you care about winning because you want to win, but you don't need to care about the, the unserious stuff that comes with it. And every kind of picture I've seen of you playing poker, you always look, like the only guy smiling and relaxed, and you, you really genuinely seem like you're enjoying yourself. But have you ever come across anybody at those tables that was really intimidating? And if so, how do you handle? Because what we do, you're a screens between everybody. How do you handle being in the presence of someone who's really intimidating at something? Well, well, first of all, first of all, I have to say that as a group, the poker players are much more delightful than the bridge players. But that <laughs> is starting at a really low base. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the players are, but the very first coach I had who taught me in the very first time I played in a really high stakes tournament, I think it was a million dollar tournament, part of the coaching before the tournament, he says, what are you going to do when Phil Ivey stares at you for five minutes? Like, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to look at him? Are you going to move? Are you going to flinch? Or what are you going to, what, what are you going to do when that happens? And then I played the tournament and I got into a hand. And I made a bet and Phil Ivey stared at me for five minutes and I didn't move a muscle and I did exactly what I planned to do. And it was the benefit that I had a good coach that prepared me for that specific dynamic. And then all I had to do was execute on what my plan was for what happens there. And ultimately, as it happened to turn out, I had a good hand and he called and he didn't have as good a hand because I don't know what he had because he threw his cards away. And I want a really nice pot. And, you know, the thing is, it's, it's like anything else, you know, no matter how good they are, they're starting with two cards and you're starting with two cards. And on this particular hand, you know, we're, I've got a fighting shot. And, and so I just, just do the best I can. And, and if it turns out that I do badly in a tournament or I lose or something like that, you know, most people lose. You know, 85% of the people lose their money in a poker tournament. Only 15% make the money. So most of the time, you're not, you're, you're not going to come out, uh, you, know, you know, with the cash. Um, and when you do, then you can just appreciate it. For me, this is like what I do in my recreation time. I view this as like my summer vacation or something like that. I'm not playing in 100 poker tournaments a year. So, you know, it's a small number and, and it's really almost like my vacation time and, and I enjoy it. I've always found that in trading and investing that the lows are way more painful than the highs are enjoyable. Is it the same with poker or just because it's that, it's that vacation thing, do you get to enjoy the highs and really enjoy them? You know, when you lose in a poker tournament, 
it, 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 it's a, it's a weird dynamic because you're there and you're in there and you're competing and, and, and maybe there's, you know, people paying attention and people watching and, you know, you're one of the players and it's going on and then you lose your chips and, and cause you play until you lose your chips right. and then you're out and, and now you're an empty chair and now you walk out in the hall and nobody cares about you anymore. <laughs> and so, cause, cause they're, now they're all focused on the remaining players. You know, you're, you've been like eliminated. It's, it's like the squid games kind of, except without the, the true mortality, but you're dead for that, for that game and all intents and purposes. And depending on how your demise came, you might feel great about it. You, you might've played well and gotten unlucky. You may have played well and, 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 uh, just got beat. You might have played poorly or you might have, you know, you don't know. So you sit there, you'll analyze it for a while. And, you know, then, you know, maybe you go have a meal or have a drink or go for a walk or go for a swim. And a few hours later, you know, life is back to, you know, what's going on with uh, Twitter. Are we going to get that deal closed or whatever the, you know, whatever the next thing is. It's fascinating. It, the analogs with investing are just, I mean, you don't even need to highlight them. It's just, it's fascinating to me that to talk to people that play these games on the side of this, because it's, it's, it's all right there. It's fascinating. As a reformed short seller, the, the, <laughs> the reason I used to watch these pokers, I loved the guys when they could get away from what looked like a great hand, because that was the thing that was the hardest for me to learn on the short side. You know, I had these guys, I knew it. I knew they had them this quarter. They were going to have, and then they did, and, you know, and then, you know, the, the difficult thing about short selling, at least for me, was is you got to have all this conviction, but to learn the, the ability to fold the hand, that was the part for me that was the hardest. Perhaps playing poker made those two worked well for you, to, or did you have trouble getting away from, you know, shorts where you had to like fold your hand and come back two quarters later? Did the poker skills help you at all in that? You know, it's a really good analogy, and and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I do feel like to the extent that 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 people think of me in a way that I think is different from how I think of me. I think a lot of times people think that I'm like really stubborn or something like this. And I actually am not. I am very capable of admitting a mistake and folding the hand and realizing that a sunk cost is a sunk cost and risk managing the position. And I don't necessarily write down the details of every one of these decisions like in a quarterly letter or, or something like that. But I think it's very important to realize uh, when you're wrong. And what I tell people is when you have that little inner voice that's telling you that maybe you're not as right as you thought you were, you need to really listen to that voice. And, and it's better to listen to it the very first day than to let the market validate your, your, um, your concern. And so when you're nervous, it's good to reduce or it's good to exit or, or something like that. And, and you don't have to give up completely if you really kind of think, well, I'm going to be right in a couple of quarters. So maybe you reduce it. Maybe maybe you cut it in half or something like that and say, look, the timing here might not just be what, you know, what I hope that it, that it would be. Um, but yeah, I think there is definitely an analogy to having a sunk cost and having a view where you've put chips into a pot or you've made a, 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 an investment and kind of realizing, well, I'm really going to have to, you know, call this one a loser. And I think the quicker you do it, usually, usually the better. Fascinating. David, this has been so enjoyable. I can't thank you enough for taking this time. Bill and I have been looking forward to this for about three months now, and uh, it's been every bit as enjoyable as we knew it would be. So seriously, thank you for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. It's it's truly, truly been my my pleasure. And, and thanks for having me on. And 
uh, you can count on me. I will be listening to your future guests as well. Thank you. And we will put this out right after the Twitter thing, I think, just to make sure. <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Thanks David. Again, David. Great. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, man, I've got to say, that was so much fun. That was really, really enjoyable. I loved every second of that, Bill. Yeah, I did too. I'm so glad you brought up the, the topic of poker because that was really fascinating. Uh, and, and of course, um, I mean, I, I think there are some analogies between investing and playing poker, as, as I said, particularly on the short side, at least for me. Um, but that was about as much fun as you can have doing a podcast, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and you're right. I mean, that po- I've been dying to ask David about the poker stuff for such a long time because, you know, I watch that stuff. I, I'm not a poker player either. I, I enjoy watching the WSOP and it's it's fun that I've got good friends of mine who are poker players and a couple of them were very successful traders. And I've always fascinated in how the two kind of yeah. come together and whether whether they screw you up or they help you. And from what David said and the way he describes it, I have to think that they're very, very complimentary. Yeah, it seems to me that really good traders and really good poker players have this sort of sixth sense, for lack of a better way to describe it. And, uh, you know, like, well, how did they think that? You know, it's, you know, because if you talk to someone who's really good at either one of those two things, you you, you see that they have a different gear or something like that. I I can't really put my finger on it. But anyway, it was was fun to discuss that. Yeah, I mean, it was great to get him to flesh out the quote unquote death of value investing, because that's what all the headlines have been. And it's actually, it's funny when you dig into it. Much more nuanced. Much more nuanced. It's quite the opposite, in fact, right? Yeah, exactly. This this is going to be a good time to be a value investor. It's not not dead. It's just, it's Don't give up. Exactly. Don't give up. If there's one thing you take from this podcast, don't give up. All right, mate. Well, listen, this was uh, this was a lot of fun. Our thanks to our special guest, David Einhorn, for taking all that time to sit and chat with us. That was uh, that was uh, really, really enjoyable. Our thanks to you for listening, as always. Um, if you don't follow us already, you can do that very easily. You'll find us on Twitter. I'm at TTMYGH. And I'm at Fleckcap. He's still there, folks. He's there all week. Let's see, we can take a week off now after three in a week. Three in a week, yeah. I, I, I need to get a pay raise. <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right, great. Take care. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.